Well, once again, welcome back to Biblical Theology. Yes, you have me one more week. You've been <laughs> super patient. Um, I taught a little bit longer than I thought, which is okay. I like, I like teaching a lot, so I've, I've appreciated um, you putting up with me and being patient with me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope you are getting something out of the class as well. It's, it's taken a while to work through. It's a 12-week class, as you well know, if you see the back of this guide. Um, which is kind of a sustained effort. I know kind of some of you are maybe in and out of the class for various reasons, but um, this is one of those things we want to take some time to work through, and you can well see that we could have spent easily a whole year <laughs> for this class, not just 12 weeks. We're just really, the, the old adage, we're just skimming the surface on it, and we really are. So hopefully this will give you some tools, which is really what this course is about, uh, is to give you tools for you to do biblical theology, when you read the scriptures, um, if you teach, um, whatever kind of capacity that you're handling the scriptures, that you're handling them in a right way. Um, so if you pick up a text to know some things about that text and how it falls in the big storyline of scripture. I know I've used this illustration a lot now, but I think it's a good visual to think about biblical theology as what we call this overarching narrative or this fancy word of meta-narrative, right? the big story line of the Bible. Well, if you look at the back of this handout today, you'll see that we have defined the first couple of weeks of this class. We define what biblical theology is. We've kind of been coming back to that over and over again. So that was June 3rd. I want to pick up on one of those things I mentioned that first class. I'll pick up on that today again. Uh, and then we talked about defining the tools. So this is where Sam came in to do that. And then we moved into what we've been in for the past few weeks is to look at those individual stories. Right? So we looked at kingdom through covenant, um, story of sacrifice, story last week I talked about and worked through the story of idolatry, this overarching um, narrative that we see. Well, today we have a little bit of a switch too because what we do from like here on out is to take a lot of those tools and to see maybe not necessarily individual stories, although we're going to look at individual stories, but how does this actually work out if we work through individual books in the scriptures as well? So, for example, Exodus, um, Samuel, Psalms is what we're going to do today, and then all the way out through Revelation. So to do that, to, um, to look at these kind of individual things is hopefully to give you some kind of tools to do that. So obviously we can't look at every part of that book, so we'll take little parts and pieces of the book as well. It, you know, one of, the, one of the kind of dangers of reading the scriptures is that oftentimes we want to read it, um, we want to read ourselves into it a lot, or we want to think that the scriptures essentially are about us in some way. And in some case, that is partly true. I mean, the scriptures do address us. But mainly, mostly, big picture, that the scriptures are about the person and the work of Christ and who he is. So that's one of the things we want to be really careful when we read the scriptures is to keep that in mind, that this is about Christ, that the whole Bible is about him. Uh, every part of it. And we're going to see that today. Jesus is actually going to speak to that um, very clearly. We'll take a look at that particular thing that he talks about. 
how it, how it kind of works itself out to do that. The question is, how do we go about doing that? How do we go about reading the scriptures in light of the fact it's about Christ? Right? So this is where biblical theology comes in and really helps us do those things. Biblical theology is one of those tools, and that's really what it is. It's this tool to help us if we are just individually reading the scriptures. So if you pick up a passage, you open up to Jeremiah um, to ask some questions of that text. So where does it fall? What's the point of the text? How, how do we get from that to Christ? So biblical theology really helps us to do that in that particular way. It's a good guide, for example, that when Brad this week, maybe last night, was preparing this sermon for today, he's using biblical theology to, as a guide, as a help, as a source of determining what's, what's going on around the text, where's this fall, where's this particular event, this particular passage fall in the big picture of the storyline of the scriptures. So biblical theology, this is point number two, is that it's a guide. I, I touched on this the very first week of this class, that biblical theology is both a guide and it's a guard. I gave you that illustration. I don't know if you remember that in a while. That it, it's essentially like if you go bowling and you have, if you're a terrible bowler like I am, you, you have the bumpers that can come up, right? And you can throw the ball and it doesn't matter where you throw it. It's going to hit the bumpers. It's going to guide that ball down, down the lane. And that's what biblical theology really does. It serves as this guide to do that, that you're going to be leading down the lane, that eventually, if we do this correctly, it'll get us to Christ, and it'll do it rightly. But it's also not just a guard, but it's a guide. It's a guide for good preaching, good teaching. Yeah, most of us in here may never stand up in a pulpit and give a sermon that might terrify all of us, right? If, if I had to do that or you had to do that. But we all in some capacity teach the scriptures. And we once again want to teach it rightly. We want to teach it that it focuses on who Christ is. So biblical theology as a guide, and particularly uh, in this case what it guides us to, it helps us in a couple of ways. It helps us to get the text in the right context. You've heard that kind of phrase before. But it also helps us to ward off things um, that sometimes we can slip into, such as teaching a text and teaching it in the sense of moralism, or if you spiritualize a text. So let me give you an example. Um, I teach at a particular school, it's a Christian school, and every week uh, we have a chapel service. Okay, so you, we, we herd all these kids in this chapel setting, most of them don't want to be there, right? So it's like the hardest place in the world to speak and teach at. So you have them in there, and then um, they have different teachers, so they'll bring in people to, to teach. So they have all, they, they're exposed to all kinds of different teaching. So I've seen kind of a wide swath of teaching in my years there and during chapel. Well, one particular day, we had a, um, we had a gentleman come and he was there for a few days. And he took a passage, and he had everybody turn to the Old Testament, and this particular passage that deal with Moses. And he read this passage. He read it very dramatically. And at one point in the passage, Moses is holding a staff in his hand. 
If, we, if you've read any part of the Old Testament, you may be familiar with that, that passage. And the speaker took that point to take that idea of Moses holding a staff in his hand to ask this question. Well, if Moses is holding something in his hand, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on in your hand? And he proceeded for the next, what seemed to be four hours, but it was probably like 45 minutes, <laughs> uh, to talk about what you and I are holding in our hands. Now, it's true, we may hold on to things in our lives, right? We all do that, right? So that part's true. What's woefully unacceptable in that is that this person stood up, opened up the scriptures, and essentially spiritualized this text. Because that passage had nothing in the world to do with me holding on to something. That passage primarily had to do with the fact of what the Lord had guided Moses to do. And if we're not careful, we will read ourselves into the text. And if we're not especially careful, we'll read a story and we'll make ourselves the hero of the story. So once again, we have to backtrack a little bit. Jesus, this whole thing is about him, and it is. He's the hero of the story, not me. Um, so those are things we have to be cautious of anytime. We're, we open up the Bible because we're kind of tempted to do that. The other thing, too, really quickly, is that sometimes if we're not careful, we tend to moralize the text. So we may, once again, there's a double-edged double sword here. We may tend to fault or move toward, if we're not careful, moralism. Okay. Now, this word's an interesting word. I'll stop here for a second. What do you think that word means? Moralism. Any thoughts on that? Siri doesn't count. You can't ask Siri. <laughs> yeah? Worth thinking morally. Okay, so obviously we want to think morally. Morally is a good Right? The issue of being moral is a good thing. It's this tricky little part of this, in this, uh, the suffix of the word. So anytime you see a word and it tags on an ism, an ism, well, that means that there is a particular worldview, it's a philosophy. So, for example, um, we are all human but we may not all subscribe to humanism. That's a philosophy, that's a worldview, that, that's an idea that man's the center of all things. Some people in here uh, may be feminine, which is good, but then there's a philosophy of feminism as well. Right, so we can, we can follow through with that in each of these ideas. So we obviously the scriptures call us to be moral. But the idea of moralism is another one of those subtleties. If we're not careful and not using biblical theology wisely, um, we'll slip into not just spiritualizing the text, but moralizing the text as well. So any other thoughts what moralism might be if it's a philosophy or a worldview? Yes, ma'am.
Yeah, it gets extremely dangerous. I heard a gentleman once, and it's been a good filter for me to think through sermons as well. Uh, there's a pastor who said this once. Uh, it's really stuck with me that if you could go to, if you could listen to a sermon, and if that sermon could be preached in a mosque or a synagogue or in a town hall meeting, and it not be really offensive, then what you've done is actually preached moralism and you've gutted Christianity of the most important thing. You have a Christless Christianity. And that's the subtlety of that. By the way, that's not a 21st century thing. I mean, we kind of think, think that in terms of 21st century Christianity. That's an age-old problem. And if you ever want to see this kind of fully, for example, um, read the life of Benjamin Franklin, whose best, one of his contemporaries and friends was George Whitfield. Couldn't get more diametrically opposed. Franklin wanted to set up a, a, Christless, a Christless moral religion, particularly Christianity, a Christless Christianity where you're a good person, you do the right thing, but you get rid of all the doctrines of that. Right? So if we're not careful, we'll get into that as well. So maybe a good way to think of moralism, I wrote this down, is the belief that the Christianity in, particular, in general and the gospel in particular <clears throat> can be reduced to just merely the improvement of behavior. Or as we say in the South, I was raised right, right? Uh, which is a good thing, but there's a lot of people who were raised right who are lost because they don't know the Christ of the Scriptures. And, and if we're not careful, we'll, we'll equate those things together. Biblical theology helps us not to do that, and that's really important um, as we look at this. So, with that being said, how does this apply to Christ himself? And maybe the best way to do that is to see how Jesus applies the scriptures and talks about the scriptures concerning himself. So I want to read with you a couple of passages today, some of them you're very familiar with, so all the Gospels. So I'd like for us to turn there together, if you don't mind. So this is uh, Luke chapter 24. I'll give you a second to find that. Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to be reading verse 27. This is, this is um, Luke 24. I'm going to look at verse 27. So again, we're considering how the text points us to Christ. So if we pull Christ out, we've just spiritualized the text or moralized the text. We don't want to do that. So Luke chapter 24, I'm going to look at verse 27. And then skip down verses 44 through 47. Okay? So Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Would someone read that? You don't have to listen to me read. Someone else read that? Okay, well, I'll read it. Um, the beginning, and beginning, so this is post-resurrection, right? So Jesus sits down and essentially has this uh, Bible study with the disciples, which is this, of all Bible studies, the Bible study, right? Um, and he says to them, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So there we have these two things that Jesus talks about when he references himself to the scriptures. He talks about Moses, and then he talks about the prophets. Well, if you jump down at 40, verses 44 through 47, Jesus gets a little more specific here. He lists these threefold things. Once again, I suspect most of you have read this. It's worth looking at here, what Jesus says about himself. This is verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, so if you underline, if you write in your Bible, this would be a good, good thing to underline, in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He then opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, uh, beginning from Jerusalem. If you go over to to chapter 5 of John, you're welcome to turn there. I'm going to read it really fast. But chapter 5 of John, John chapter 5, Jesus says something very similar. He says, so this is verses 39 through 40. This is John 5, 39 through 40. Jesus says that you search the scriptures, the graphe, the writings, you search the scriptures, and you do it for a reason, because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he's addressing the, the Pharisees here, the teaching. And it is they that bear witness about me. There's these scriptures that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what Jesus is doing here is referring to this kind of threefold parts of the scriptures. Matter of fact, he's referring to the, the Hebrew Old Testament. So this is a really interesting word. The Hebrew Old Testament has a particular name to it. So I put this on your handout, and it's called, so I've highlighted certain parts of it, it's called a Tanakh, which is essentially a made-up word. But it's made-up word because of what, the, what the, uh, the Hebrew writers were doing, how they're referring to the Old Testament. Okay? And what they were doing is referring with this word from the Hebrew Bible these three things. So the first word, the T, so it's this acronym stands for this. The T stands for the Torah, which is what Jesus is first alluding to here, right? So this is the law of Moses. The second thing that Jesus refers to about himself, he says that all this is reference to him, is this other word, the Nebi'im, N-E-B-I, sometimes it's spelled N-E-V-I, apostrophe I-N, and that refers to the prophets. And then we've got this last word, which is kind of a cool word. It's one of those guttural sounds, so if you say it, you have to kind of space yourself from other people. It's, like it's caught right in, your, right in your, your gullet. And this word, which is pronounced Ketavim, which I can't do very well, the Ketavim, and it's K-H-E-T-U-V-M. Sometimes it's just spelled K-E-T-U 
Ketvim, the Ketavim. And the Ketavim refers to the writings. So the Psalms will be incorporated into that, amongst other things, well, the histories as well. So when Jesus is referring to himself here, he's referring to the fact that he is the Torah. This is what it's referenced to him, that the prophets were fulfilling what was supposed to be toward him, that the writings were about him. Notice nowhere in there does he say that the law of, the Mo- the law of Moses, prophets, and the writings are about you or me. He says it's actually about him. And all these things point to him as well. Matter of fact, that would be a good thing maybe to write down in your notes if you're <coughs> keeping notes. Is that what Jesus is saying here is that every part of Scripture, every single aspect of it, is about him. All these parts are about him. So Jesus, this seems to be the point that Jesus is making. That every single part of this Every part of the Old Testament, how the, how the Jews would have defined the Old Testament to be, that every single part of it was about him. And this is what he takes his disciples through post-resurrection, how each of this, how all parts of this is about him. By the way, I mentioned on the first class that there's a prominent, and I didn't mention his name, no, I don't really want to now, but there's a prominent evangelical pastor who several weeks ago made that, this comment in one of his sermon series about us unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament, which he's kind of gone back and, and kind of edited what he's uh, meant by that and said by that, and rightly so. Um, so I'll let you, if you want to further look on that, you can. But the, the reason there was kind of an outcry in this, and, and particularly when we look at that kind of statement that you should unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, is because of this very thing that Jesus says. Because he's saying that all this is about him. So this is why if you un so it's just kind of logically working through this, if this is why if you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, the problem that you run into is that you unhitch yourself from whom? From Christ Himself. And if you unhitch yourself from Christ Himself, you don't have Christianity. You have a Christless Christianity. And there's the danger. This is why we want to be really careful uh, when, we, when we consider these things and look at them. So to do that, today, I want to take three particular um, things from three different books, okay? Um, and one of them I want to look at is from the book of Exodus. So how do you do that? This is the question. How do you take a passage and get it back to Christ? How does that work? How do, when, as one pastor once said, that all roads lead, lead, to, to, lead to Christ. Now, you don't want to make it say something that it doesn't say. There's always a danger of that too, but how do you get there? And how you get there is to look at these passages. There's some, I think, important questions. There are all kinds of questions, but I've listed on this handout for you kind of maybe four questions to consider when you look at particular texts to see how Christ is magnified in these things, okay? So, for example, one of the questions that you'd want to consider is, well, what's the point of the text? That's one of the first things that's listed there, right? What's the point of the text, right? 
um, what's the meaning of this text. And by the way, the text only has one meaning. It may have multiple applications, but it only has one meaning. What that writer intended to say. We live in a pluralistic, relativistic world that says that you can have multiple meanings. Right? But we're people of the scriptures, we're thinking rational people, and it only has one meaning. What that person wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, it can have a plethora, a myriad of applications, which we'll look at some of those today. But we're looking at what is the, what's the point of the text. Second question to look at, where does this text fall in the storyline, the biblical storyline? Right? So that back to that kind of big meta-narrative. Where in that storyline does this particular passage fall? Why? And that's, that's very important. Uh, question number three. How does this text point to Christ? And so under that, we have some ways to do that. You won't use all these, but there's some good tools that Sam and Trey has kind of led us through to do that, some tools to do that. How does this text point to Christ? So, for example, um, we know that two really important aspects of biblical theology to consider is the issue of promise fulfillment. God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise. Promises a Messiah, he fulfills that promise. And then the other part of it is this idea of what's called typology. Right? So if you weren't in here before, the idea of typology, it sounds like a fancy word, but it's a word that we all know really well. So I mentioned to you last week, there's a certain part of you in here that will have no concept of ever using a typewriter, and then there's some of you in here that know what a typewriter is. But the idea of a typewriter is a good illustration of the idea of a type or typology. Because if you hit a key on a typewriter, it's going to imprint, it's going to strike and imprint the page. And that's what we see, and that's what this word means, this idea of a type. And there are all kinds of types in the Old Testament that come out of the Tanakh, right? That come out of all these things. And these types are ultimately fulfilled, because Jesus said they were, are ultimately fulfilled um, in him. He's the great anti-type. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the what? And the king, right? He's the anti-type to fulfill all those things. So we have, under typology, then we have things like institutions or offices, prophet, priest, king. Well, under typology, we also have people. David is a type. We also have events, the Passover, which is a type of thing to come. So the scriptures run on those rails, right? This is how God has revealed himself and ultimately is going to reveal Christ in that. So typology is really important to look at. Uh, Part B is theme. We have themes that run through the Bible as well. Last week, we looked at one of those themes, which is the theme of idolatry, right? The man's sin and our great propensity for that. And that's not just the fact of Israel That's the fact of us as well. This is a thread, as I mentioned, that runs through all of our hearts in this room. If you pull on that string, all of us get pulled in that. So theme is something to look at. The storyline, okay? How the story is told. Is it told from exile and then post-exile? So those are important parts to look at in the storyline too. We can also look at it as well um, as the idea of God... Man, Christ, response, which is a really good way to kind of sum up the gospel, who God is, who we are, 
why Christ came, and then our response to that should lead us to that as well. So we can, we can read through those kind of lenses as well. And then the last one is this link between any time the Old Testament is mentioned um, and linked up in the New Testament. So the New Testament references things of the Old Testament. By the way, quiz question to get you talking. So I'm going to have you discuss this. I totally threw this in. I just made this up. Um, what is the most cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Talk to your neighbor. What's the most cited or quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Which if it's the most quoted, you'd think it's really important, and it is really important. This is almost as tricky as the big worship question I asked last week. <laughs> what do you think it is? How many people are like, I have no idea what it is? How many people, I've never even thought about that before. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Anybody else? That's a guess. Say again. Okay. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Let's look at this. I'll let you turn there. I won't do much with it. I'll actually refer to this later. But look at Psalm 110. Verse 1. Psalm 110. Verse 1. Anyone want to read that? Yeah, Jesus picks that up in the Gospels in the New Testament. He asks this very question. It's one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament. How is it that the Lord could say to my Lord, right? So who's the son here? And how does that work? How does the son of David say to that? And Jesus is picking that up, right? So we'll, we'll maybe take a look at that passage in just a second. All right, so with these four questions, let's look at three different passages. One of them, um, fairly quickly, and then we'll spend a little, maybe a little bit more time on the other two. One of them is probably the most spiritualized text in maybe all the Old Testament. So one of the first things we want to do is, how does this work out? How does biblical theology help us to see how the scriptures point to Christ? As Christ says, that these things um, are fulfilled in him. So one of the first things we'll look at is, I'm just picking one of these. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Part of the commandments. Anybody want to read that one? It's really short. 
shall not commit adultery. What's the point of that text? (laughs) Don't commit adultery. (laughs) That's right. Eventually Jesus is going to pick that up too, yeah. So the point of this text is, yeah, don't commit adultery. Well, if we start running through these questions, though, because we want to see how every, because Jesus says this, right? Every part of the scriptures are about him, right? So if we start looking at that, how does that work? How do you take a passage like that, an individual one, an individual command, and look at that? So the point seems to be very clear, but what about this next one? How does it fall in the biblical storyline? Well, we know that in the storyline that Israel's under the Mosaic law, right? This is the administration of that. And that God gave them this law to separate them, to make them distinct people, to make them, as we talked about earlier, true image bearers of God. And to do that, they will be different than other cultures around them. God gives them laws that are pleasing to him because they are representative of who he is. They reflect him. And in turn, as image bearers, we reflect God. So this becomes part of the narrative or the storyline that we see how it falls. How does this point to Christ? Well, I think someone mentioned this a few minutes ago. This tells us, so for example, Matthew chapter 5 Verse 17 tells us this very thing, that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. So I mentioned to you um, when I first started this class that I had a question once from a student. Why did Jesus have to come down, live 33 years, die on a cross? Why couldn't he just come down on a Friday, go right to Golgotha, crawl up on a cross, die, um, resurrect it, go back to heaven, make a weekend. Why all this time? Why these 33 years? And 30 of them's in obscurity. Why is that? Well, we're told why that is. Because we need Christ's life and his obedient life as much as we need his sacrificial death. Christ fully obeyed the law. Say it a different way. Jesus didn't commit adultery. Now, if you're a good moralist, you're going to stop right there, and you're going to raise your hand, and you're going to say, well, I haven't committed it either. So how's that any better? Right? How, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm good, right? It's kind of a natural, kind of a moralistic way to read this text, too. Until you read what Jesus kind of further tells us about this. So, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, passage that we're all really familiar with. This is Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says this. He says, you've heard it was said. It's been taught. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, notice what Jesus says here, how he is the ultimate prophet here, right, in that. Old Testament prophets, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you, unheard of, right? Jesus is going to say this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And by saying that, we are all then, therefore, lawbreakers. And Jesus compounds this with that statement. So the moralists can't stand on that because we all know that we've all done that. That we're all guilty before a holy, righteous God who's given us laws to live by. And we realize that in our sinful nature, in our own sinful hearts, we can't, we won't live by these laws. That we've woefully broken those laws. That we have committed the very things that God tells us not to do. That's the bad news. The good news comes out of this in how do you read this through Christ? What's the application part of it? How does this apply? Or as one pastor once said, not just the fact that what's the application of the text, but what's the implication of the text? What's implied here? Well, back to that statement. Jesus didn't commit adultery. He never lusted, which is an unfathomable thing to think about. But it's true. He's sinless. We need a sinless Savior in order to make atonement for our sin. Because if he is with sin, he'll need someone to make an atonement. And since he is sinless, and he is, we have a perfect, righteous, law-abiding, law-obeying substitute on our behalf. The good news, the application part of it is, Jesus has done those very same things. I've broken this law. And if I could be so bold to say, you've broken this law. We stand condemned. But thanks be to God, we do not have to stay condemned. Christ comes, lives this perfect life, is obedient to the Father, fulfills every part of the law perfectly, dies a substitutionary death, rose again, victorious, ascends to the Father, reigns with him, by him, for us, that he's interceding for us as our great high priest. Friends, this is the great hope of the gospel that we have. Not the fact that, I've not, that I haven't outwardly just obeyed something, but the fact that I've, I know that I may have outwardly obeyed, but I've inwardly disobeyed, but that Christ has fully obeyed, and that I can find hope and forgiveness and restoration in him. This is the good news of this gospel that we preach. So this is why we, we want to be careful when we look through these texts, how are we getting to Christ in that ultimately? Second example. By the way, really quick, I, I failed to mention this. Not only, the, not only the fact that we have this forgiveness, but we also in this need to help one another live out this command too. Because we're also commanded that we're to help one another. So this is Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. And then this last part of it. And so fulfill the law of Christ. So this is not just some individual thing. Too. We're to help one another in this. We're to encourage one another. Right? That may mean sitting across the, the lunch table with someone or coffee and, and ask them, how's your spiritual life going? <laughs> Are you looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at? Are you reading things that you should be reading? Um, Are you pursuing Christ? How's that working out in your life right now? 
that we're to, to, we're to help one another. We're to sharpen one another to do that. And by the way, I've been in those situations, and it's uncomfortable, <laughs> both to ask those questions and to have those questions asked to you. But that's part of the thing that the great thing about uh, the scriptures that we're also commanded to do as well. Number two, the story of David and Goliath, which may be the most spiritualized text in all of the scriptures. Okay? It's one of those things where we've all heard the story, you've seen the flannel board perhaps, or you've told the story in some way. And so we know the story pretty well. But I'd like to take just a second for us to read through parts of the story together. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 17. So the concept here to look at is how does this story ultimately relate to Christ? Right? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to pick up at verse 19. And I may skip around a little bit, skip ahead, so I'll let you know which passage, what verse I'm at. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 19. Here we go, verse 19. And, and now Saul and they all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep in the keeper and, and took provisions and went uh, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper for the, the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. And behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. So essentially, they're faced off. They're on two different mountains, and there's a valley in between. And they, they can see one another. They can hear one another. You know the story. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, then, uh, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. There's the subtlety of the scriptures here. They were terrified. <laughs> they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes, uh, takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Classic brother issue. I've got two sons. I see this lived out every day of my life. Right? Right? Oldest brother. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you, this is the shot here, right? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Like, why are you here bothering us? You've got a little, little, little sheep uh, herd to take care of. You go do that, right? Let the men take care of this. We'll take care of this. You go back and take care of your sheep. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, and for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Why is it uh, but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Verse 31, And when the words that David spoke were heard, 
they repeated them before Saul. And he sent to him and said, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight for this Philistine. So you maybe know the story, maybe not. So Saul eventually agrees to this, right? Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go uh, in vain to go, for he has not tested them. And, and David said that to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And so David put them off. He gets five smooth stones. You know the story. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward. The tension mounts in the story, right, the drama. Uh, near to David, and with his shield bare in front of him, and the Philistines saw, looked and saw David and was disdained. Here's a, here's a kid. They've sent a kid with no armor to fight me, the greatest warrior of all, right? And this kid's going to do anything, right? So it's, it's uh, dishonoring to, for him for this to happen. Verse 43, and the Philistines said to David, am I a dog? Is this what you think of me? That you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine came to David Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And then once again, if you mark in your Bible, verses 46 and 47, super important. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all, these, all this assembly may know that the Lord, Yahweh, that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give uh, you into your hand. And you know the rest of the story. David pulls out this, buries this rock in the temple of the Philistine, cuts off his head, this whole thing. Now, this story is very important as we look at it through the lens of biblical theology, how does this apply? Because it's easy, once again, to spiritualize this text, moralize this text in some way. We become David. We've all heard that, right? Who's the Goliath in your life? What staff, what are you holding on to in your hand? It's the same concept, right? And I think we know from having been in this, through these classes, and just reading the scriptures on our own, we know there's something more to that than just, just that simple statement. So what's the point of the story? Well, the text actually tells us this, but one way to look at it is that Israel needs an appointed man of God's choosing who's trusted in God in order to rescue them from their enemies. So if you, once again, if we look at the big storyline, so how does this fall in the storyline of the Scriptures? This is the story of Israel. And after the Mosaic Law is given, the people now have moved, and they are geographically bound. They're culturally bound. They're bound by their enemies here as well in this, as a one-nation uh, state. And we know that from prophet, priest, king, that David here becomes, once again, the type to be fulfilled. As a matter of fact, 
1 Samuel 16, the Lord said, this is verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, go, and I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among all. We know that David is this part of this, right? So how does this point to Christ? Well, David becomes this type that we see in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the New Testament over and over again references this idea that Christ is this anointed king. By the way, what is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110. And what does Psalm 110 say? Verse 1. You say, Lord, to my Lord, right? Jesus pulls this very thread out to apply this to himself, to uh, back to the Pharisees again to say this. So the New Testament, once again, tells us this over and over again. I know I'm going big picture here, but that this fulfillment, if you read a great place to look, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, right? The, the idea of the referencing of Christ coming through this lineage of David, that David serves as the type, a failed one eventually, to get us to point us to the perfect one, the antitype, the one who will fully lead and fully govern the kingdom of God. So how do you read this as a means of application? How is this, what's the implication of this? We've got David and Goliath, we've got the story, we're not David, and if we press it, we may be more like Goliath <laughs> in the story, but how do you, what's the application or implication of the text? And sometimes this is harder than others. This story is super easy because it gives, us, it, gives it to us, right? Here are the, here's the implication application. Verse 46, that all the earth, by the way, this is an evangelistic slash apologetic one too, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel because of what the Lord has done. We can say that same thing about our own lives as too. And then the other part of it, sort of this edification that comes out of it, this is verse 47, that the Lord saves not with sword or spear. Actually, the battle is the Lord's. This is about him. Not about, ultimately, David or you and I, but it's about the Lord and what he's done. Last one. And this time, I think I'm going to have you read this one. See what you can do with this one. And then we'll end by Haley making an announcement. We'll have her come up and make an announcement. This is Psalm chapter 1. Very short one. Psalm 1 and 2 kind of sets the, the, the overview of the, of the Psalter as well. This is Psalm chapter 1. I'll give you a second to read that. Instead of me reading it to you, I'll give you a second to read it. Psalm chapter 1.
not only are we in a different section, we're here in the Ketavim, right? We're in poetry. We're a different genre, even. But we still apply the same kind of questions to it as well. What's the point of this poem? What's the point of this text? You've got two ways to live, right? And in that, the, 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 the man of righteousness, he walks. It's the verb that's used here. By the way, Paul picks us up in Ephesians chapter 4. He walks. He stands. There's a progression kind of downward here too. And then he what? Sits, right, in the counsel of the, of the godly, the righteous. And then you have on the other side of that the way of the wicked as well. Biblical storyline, this, this is the story of Israel, right? That after the giving of the law, the people uh, do this, but this is the storyline in it. But looking back, we see from the very beginning, Israel is referred to as God's son. And God's son is to live righteous. He's not commit adultery. But guess what? He's not also not to have any other gods before him. But this son um, does all those things over and over and over again. And in the big storyline of the scriptures, not only does Israel do that, but Israel becomes, once again, a type. We see that apply to us as well. So how does this get to Christ? Well, that he is the only righteous one. We are to imitate him. We are to do after him. But we can't be like him in the sense of being fully righteous the way he's fully righteous. We need his righteousness as well. So we see this in the story, or in this poem, um, the fulfillment of Christ ultimately is this man of righteousness. And we are to model that. We are to imitate that. We are to walk, stand, sit with the counsel of the righteous. But to know, too, that we have, once again, fallen, that we have disobeyed. So, I know it's a little technical this morning, but we want to, as, a, as kind of this class starts to wind its way down, to start using these uh, tools to see for you, to help you look in these passages and to find Christ in them. How does it fit? What's the storyline? How does it work in the big picture of it? And then pointing to Christ, and then how does that apply to you and then to me as well? And to do that, it sets up good guards and good guides for our reading of the scriptures, which is what we want.